Welcome to the latest podcast from the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. We're bringing you the latest updates and insights from the world of recruitment to help you navigate these challenging times. Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. Uh, My name is Neil Carberry, the REC Chief Executive. Delighted you could join us again as we look at how the industry is navigating its way through this odd time coming out of lockdown and beginning to open up, but still very much uh, with uh, the coronavirus with us. And as you may have noticed over the last few days, that uh, uh, a whole real chestnut of Brexit starting to occupy minds again. We're recording this in the week where on Monday the 13th, Priti Patel announced the plans for the new immigration system for the for the UK due to come in on the 1st of January. So big rush to get that right and big questions about whether it'll be flexible enough to meet to the country's needs going forward, especially for some of those key in-demand and shortage skills that we know despite likely rising unemployment through the year, we're still going to have significant shortages of even coming towards uh, the end of the year. Uh, The big news, of course, last week was Chancellor Rishi Sunak's summer statement. Some really interesting things in there for the industry, particular uh, the commitment from uh, government to work with the industry in a £40 million fund to support job search for newly unemployed people. There's a real opportunity for uh, recruitment businesses to get involved with helping out and also generate some extra revenue at a time when the market's still likely to be uh, quite flat. But also uh, some changes to the furlough scheme with the furlough bonus uh, for those coming back uh, to be paid in January. By and large, though, uh, the Chancellor left the biggest guns in the cupboard back at the Treasury. And that speaks to a government position of wanting to wait to see how the economy snaps back from the lockdown and how big the effect on demand overall is once supply is switched back on before they decide where to go with big issues like uh, national insurance support and other major reforms. I think we expect to see that in the budget in the autumn and clearly uh, your REC team will be working very hard to make sure recruiters' voices are heard on that as we run into uh, the autumn period. A couple of things from the REC side to uh, draw your attention to. Last week, we launched uh, our 2020 conference. REC 2020 is on the 8th of September. It is, of course, a digital conference. Fantastic uh, day with some cracking speakers, including uh, Dame Carolyn Fairbairn of the CBI on the future of British business in what is one of our last speeches as CBI Director General. Also bring a really exciting speaker, Gus Balbatine, who's uh, beaming himself in from Australia. Fantastic thinker on how you drive change in a business and with the people around you and with yourself. Hugely uh, impressive guy and well worth your time. All, of course, delivered online. You can register for that, which has the usual mix of case studies and uh, panel sessions, practical workshops at rec.uk.com. And while you're there, you can check out things like our Lessons Learned from the Crisis Guide, available to all REC members, and also some of the training offers that we're putting together. Draw attention to the fact that the REC is offering deep discounts across the training range at the moment to help the industry out, including some free courses, if uh, if uh, that's something you want to do to invest in your people at this still quieter time. Uh, 
But that's enough about us. Let's turn to how the industry is navigating, uh, navigating the crisis and the recovery. Delighted to welcome two people who are leading businesses in the sector that have maybe had a slightly different experience to uh, many businesses because of the sectors that they specialize in. Uh, I'd like, so today on the pod, I'm joined by Frank Atkinson, and Frank's the Group Managing Director of Staffline, and Mike Barnard, who's the Chief Executive of uh, UKICS, a major player in the healthcare market. Welcome to you both to the podcast. Thanks, sir. Thanks, Thanks very much, Neil. Mike, it seems obvious to start with you. We are dealing, after all, with a public health crisis. Why don't you walk us through uh, the experience of uh, UKICS through uh, the uh, the onset of COVID and the kind of relationships you were having with the NHS and with the government in terms of keeping the, the national healthcare solution on the road? What have you seen and what have you learned through that period? Well, Neil, obviously it's been a very intense period for the system as a whole. I think a couple of observations. Unsurprisingly, during the peak part of the uh, pandemic in the UK, we were extremely busy. Um, but I think it's probably not that well known that the, the, if you like, the busyness was very concentrated in a very narrow range of skills. So try, to try and bring that to life for you, uh, if you were a consultant dermatologist, there was absolutely no work during the period. If you were a consultant um, in respiratory medicine or a histopathologist, as you can imagine, uh, you were extremely busy and your time was in demand. And that was actually similar in nursing. Um, Pediatric nurses weren't so busy, but A&E nurses were incredibly busy, busy. So we had enormous peaks in relatively narrow areas of expertise, which exacerbated actually the shortage, the imbalance between supply and demand. So whilst we were very, very busy, um, supporting uh, the system during that period, there was a large part of the workforce actually that wasn't as busy as perhaps you would expect uh, because of the focus on on A and E uh, medicine. Um, but what we learned through that process, I suppose, inevitably, was the is the importance of diversification. But wherever possible, looking to um, two things really. First of all, help the system get more efficient at running big supply chains of temporary workforce. And this is something I think uh, Frank and others in the private sector do as a matter of course, but is relatively underdeveloped. Some of the MSP type partnership models that exist that are well well established in, in the private sector, that's something that's only really coming to, to bear relatively recently in the healthcare sector. And then I suppose the um, the other key learning is how do we get the system back to work in full across the broad array of medicine as quickly as possible. And it's what I think you know many people will be aware of at the moment in that electives, elective processes are only just recently beginning to, to restart. And yet waiting lists are clearly backing up and we have challenges around segregating hospital capacity to make sure that we deal with the risk of infection. So that's really about uh, thinking more imaginatively around how we position skill sets not just from a sort of physically across the system, you know, are they, do we try and run consultant type clinics and the GP surgeries, uh, for example, rather than hospitals, but also how do we use technology to try and, um, and remote medicine, if you like, to try and uh, offer services to more patients more easily without the pressures of going into hospital? That's fascinating, Mike. And I think as part of that, um, I, I can hear the echo of some of what I've heard uh, from uh, the REC's healthcare group every so often, which is this sense that 
uh, NHS staffing supply isn't yet in the place of agencies being strategic partners with uh, either frameworks or MSPs or individual trusts and involved in that, that kind of more strategic scheduling of staff, which to a certain extent, I think has been exposed, perhaps rather less by the, the shift into de focusing on uh, treating COVID, but rather more by trying to get things up and running again, especially when you've got a lot of directly employed substantive health staff who've been redeployed during the crisis and are now coming into the summer on a very long, uh, a period of very long hours and perhaps uh, and obviously the necessity of them taking time off is creating more demand. Is there a real opportunity here for for a reset of of the client relationship with the NHS? Um, Neil, I, I definitely think so. I mean, I think the the history of the sector it, it has is partly due to the specific credentialing pressures that that we inevitably go through because uh, perhaps differently, say to to Frank's business we have a huge raft of checks and verifications that quite rightly we have to go through to make sure that a doctor or a nurse is who they say they are and are appropriately qualified. And, and that's an ongoing credentialing process. So a lot of the, should we say, the supply chain management, the framework processes have rightly focused on making sure that that credentialing effort is consistent with policy and that, you know, wherever possible, things like R35 and VAT and vatable services are being dealt with appropriately. But what I think the sector is still catching up with is to say, well, how can you use a small group of strategic suppliers to run the overall uh, supply chain, which will drive better value, better efficiency and hopefully faster service provision, rather than it's still feeling a bit like um, long agency supply chains competing each other to death, albeit within a framework of, of stronger credentialing. Well, and I think that particularly that sort of framework point, uh, picking up on the need for public procurement to be value focused, especially when you're dealing with things as important as patients' health, rather than purely cost focused, um, that, that there's a kind of value best value for the taxpayer and, and best experience for the patient test to how we move on to the next stage in healthcare staffing. Frank, let me bring you in at this point because uh, Mike's described a, a very specific uh, structure that exists within the NHS. Give us a, a, a story of how staff lines experienced this crisis and particularly some of those high demand areas that we, we saw uh, firms uh, scrabbling to fill uh, demand early on in the crisis. Sure, well, uh, thank, thanks, Neil. Um, it's, it's interesting actually to hear that there are definite synergies to, uh, I guess, the situation that Mike and his business found, um, found themselves in, you know, as, uh, as much as, as we did. Um, and I guess if I think back to sort of, you know, that March period, um, a, a sort of slug of our business, if you like, is is related to food and food supply chain. So supermarkets plus plus food manufacturing that, you know, supplies that supply chain into the supermarkets. And then we also work with logistics businesses. Um, we have drivers, et cetera, on, on temporary contracts who drive for these businesses. Um, so suddenly that sort of um, panic buying that we saw in the supermarkets 
drove a, a, a massive shift, a uh, massive increase really in a very short space of time in these sort of supermarket warehousing um, operations. So we were doing as much as we could behind the scenes to increase staff numbers to make sure that we could keep those those shelves stacked. And of course, we had that sort of burst and that, that panic buying moment. But then what quickly happened is, you know, the stocks were laid bare. So then the food supply chain, et cetera, kicked in um, with a requirement to increase production in order to fill back up the warehouses, fill back up the shelves uh, once again. So we almost saw this sort of double peak, if you like, in that in that particular sector. And we had to act very quickly. We had to act uh, in a situation where, you know, we had numbers of people working from home um, and, you know, remote working, which is which makes often it quite difficult to be interviewing and screening candidates. Fortunately, I guess as a business, we have had a significant investment over the last couple of years in terms of digital technology. So we have the ability to screen and to interview people um, through tablets and online um, before putting people out to work. So that was, you know, it was a very helpful investment that we'd had, you know, a number of years ago. But but I think, you know, what's what's very converse is that we saw that that significant peak in that sector, but then a huge slug of our business is related to the retail sector, the automotive sector, manufacturing that went almost into immediate shutdown. So we suddenly found we had workforces plus our own permanent employed staff working on these sites, which which went straight into shutdown. So at that point, like many businesses, we start looking at, well, the coronavirus job retention scheme, what we need to do with furlough, both with our workers and our employees. So we're kind of balancing these massive peaks on one side of our business versus these huge lows the other side. And then trying to navigate a way in which you know your business can continue to operate effectively in that in that world it was um it was pretty unprecedented in terms of what you you learned about the business in that time and how you responded um and we talk about use of digital tools which i think we all in different ways brought into our businesses in a much more fundamental way whether that's actually just increasing utility of things we already had or new investment and, and and equally thinking about people working in different ways uh, notably kind of many businesses almost completely absent from their usual workplaces what have you learned frank in this period about staff line as a business that that maybe you you don't want to lose as we uh, as we move on what are the what are the opportunities for growth in the business in terms of how you do business in the next uh, few months and years? It's a great question. I mean, I guess, as you'll know, I'm relatively new into the industry and have come from a background of working in environments that were very used to sort of much more remote working, home working, et cetera. So I always kind of brought that philosophy and wanted to bring that through to the business. And we've had, I guess, a real opportunity to to prove that out and prove that we can still be productive and and I'd almost counter argue, actually, in a number of our ways, in a number of ways, I feel we've been, you know, even more productive by not having, you know, that that almost unwritten requirement to be traveling uh, and to be face to face. And I don't necessarily mean with our people. It's the one thing that I, I greatly miss, that we don't necessarily have that face to face time with our people. But I think particularly our customers. So, you know, typically, if we were to see our customers, you know, our, our operational leads on a a sort of a weekly basis or a couple of meetings a week. You know, my regional directors will be out traveling a great deal of the week, having those face-to-face meetings. And then you've got the downtime of travel in between those meetings, which as as no doubt Mike and, and yourself, Neil, will, will know, we 
we spend our time, you know, listening to podcasts um, or making phone calls. So we're, we're being productive, but at the same time, I think having been in a situation where we can conduct those client meetings, you know, through Teams, and we've we've had, you know, Microsoft Teams, for example, and you know, other products are clearly available, such as Zoom, etc. But we found that actually you can have a really productive day having a lot of face time with customers and with your people and actually manage to get the day job done as well. And it's it's felt like we've had longer days, but we've been you know, arguably more productive in those in those in those senses. And I guess what's great for me is that, you know, our customers have recognized it as well. So I think the entire marketplace has recognized that there is an element of, of you know, I hate the terminology, but 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 new normal. Um and I do genuinely feel as we start climbing out of this, we will find ourselves in a world where we'll ask ourselves whether it's right to do quite as much travel, you know, both clearly because it's, it's beneficial not to do so much from, um, from, a, from a, you know, a, 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 a green perspective, but then also because we'll be more productive by not doing it. So, so I think those are the things that have, um, that have felt different from a technology perspective. Um, and I think the other, the, the, the big piece for me, and I, I very much focused on this when I joined the business, was, was to operate in that real team working environment. So I think almost, you know, a pandemic, which almost was a, was a crisis and you became sort of operating in a bit of crisis management mode, brings those teams together, whether you operate in those kind of war rooms and those forums that, you know, people are constantly in contact and that decisions are taken as a group rather than an individual. I think that's been really powerful. And I think our team will walk away from this, recognizing that actually as, a, as an operating group and a senior leadership team, for example, in my business, they'll recognize how successfully they've worked as a team. I think that's a really interesting insight, Frank, about how in what is a fundamentally purpose-led time. I mean, all of our businesses are purpose-led all of the time, but uh, it, when the pressure is really on, teams have been coming together and working really effectively uh, to get things done. And I suppose the the corollary of that is, well, how do we maintain and enhance that as we move out of the, the period? For a couple of reasons. Firstly, I think where the answer to your problem is to super perform, uh, either to you know, control costs and give yourself the cash run where you need, as many recruiters were doing in March or April who weren't have, uh, servicing areas that spiked in the uh, in the crisis, or whether it's, as you both described, serving uh, the NHS ICUs or the, uh, or, or the food supply chain where just getting people where they needed to be to keep the nation on the road really mattered. We're sort of moving into a different phase now where maybe some of the the, the pressure is less short term, but no less intense, uh, particularly thinking about how we as businesses change, uh, whether that's the changing shape of the organisation, which areas we focus on for growth, our client relationships. Uh, Mike, you mentioned the importance of that more strategic client relationship. I think that's really important for the whole industry. Um, that That's slightly more, I, I hesitate to say blue sky, but the kind of medium to longer term strategy and innovation. I think one of the things I'm interested in is how far you can achieve that in a, in a more disaggregated space where people are not necessarily together all of the time. So I'm interested, 
uh, probably come to you first on this, Mike, in terms of your medium to long term business planning and how you are thinking about getting that together and bringing the organization together at a time when, by and large, they aren't physically together. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because we have to signal a tone that we've come out of a crisis. Otherwise, frankly, the business runs on fumes. But I'm with Frank, I find that the sort of new norm is sort of dreadfully hackneyed. But but I do think there's something about um, getting back to work that is incredibly important. I'm, I absolutely agree with Frank that I've seen the power of technology, both in the new delivery models that we've got in place for clients on the on the back of the crisis. So, you know, digital therapies, we put our psychologists and psychological therapists on a secure digital platform rather than put them into hospital and into community settings. And also, obviously, from an internal perspective, getting people operational. But there is something a bit magical about productivity, which isn't just about the stats on I don't know telephony systems or CRM systems, and I've had it. I I've had it myself that I think we do learn situationally. I think we do make connections that are connect that are about peripheral hearing. It's not about the sort of narrow tramline interactions that we we might have through um, Microsoft Teams or, or Zoom or whatever the, the preferred digital platform is, and and therefore it's about actually getting people back into the office, not in any way countermanding the, you know, the government guidance, but introducing a new balance where I, th- I don't think we return to where we were, but we do have a much more intense, positive, face-to-face engagement alongside remote working. And that could be, make it up, you know, Monday to Wednesday one week, Thursday and Friday the, the following week, and that's spread out across the teams. And I think it's particularly important for two reasons. One, where you have teams that are going through change, and that could be a function of attrition, it could be a function of transformation, you know, investing in new processes or new technology. And secondly, when, you know, and you touched on this earlier, Neil, but when the leadership challenge is not really running the business, it's about developing the business to suit a different way of of, of client thinking or, or to, to help clients think in a different way. And and that's about um, you know, being connected with clients and teams over and above just the, 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 the narrow digital interaction. It's about having a conversation and a conversation that isn't, it's not always fully formed and it's about it's situational and it's about sort of lateral lateral connections and i think that has to be that has to be mixed channel multi-channel not just um uh not just team so so that's actively what we're trying to encourage within the business at the moment you know if you think about a group like be the business which was set up to drive uk productivity and it was set up largely out of a group of manufacturing firms um and it, with quite a manufacturing understanding of pro- of productivity and they've come right around to the view that so much of this is about how engaged people are the quality of management and the quality of interactions in the business and and surely that as you've suggested mike is is supercharged by by a situation like this and probably the thing that i've taken most clearly um uh from from talking to members in the last week is a real pressure amongst recruiters to say to government that you know the time for work from home if at all possible 
is starting to end and the time for go to work if it's safe is coming because at all levels that kind of peripheral productivity and that mixed model I think none of us expect people who work full-time to be in the office five days a week forevermore now uh, but that kind of mixed model starting to develop I, I mean it challenges our managers in how they manage uh, the business it challenges our expectations in terms of how we deploy resources and I think it also picks up on that point of you know how do we effectively get back to driving change if we can't have that kind of uh, peripheral space where we start generating the ideas out of which the future comes. Frank, just to pick up on that, Staffline is a business that, that was already going through change. You mentioned you're new to the business yourself. To what extent is this whole piece an opportunity for your business to to reset on things that maybe you've, you felt you needed to move on on anyway? It's a really good question. I, I think probably the first thing I'd say is I, I couldn't agree more with Mike. I think we are in a in a place where it's it's not all or nothing. We are, you know, what what this has given us is the I guess it's forcing that flexible future. So it's it's forcing us to think more clearly. And many in our businesses about what flexible working looks like going forward, and and having real value when you do get that face time. So you're not just in the office for the sake of being in the office. That you're there to to really make the most of that valuable face time. And, and for me, I think you're right. When I, when I joined the business, one of the overriding missions that we've had as a business is, is to effectively, you know, yes, to digitally transform, but to try and remove the kind of low value, high effort tasks of our, our sort of day-to-day roles. And I think it's particularly prevalent in the, you know, in the blue collar marketplace where, where we work, which, you know, <clears throat> we deal with volumes of people and some real sort of, low value high impact processes that we've we've we're trying to strip out of our business by going in a more automated fashion whether that be you know chatbots or more sort of digital recruitment digital checks on people before they start digital reductions you know automating that process that's that's great but candidates and customers still require facetime so it's making sure that that facetime is is super valuable but actually, whilst we had that sort of message for our operational teams, and that's where we wanted to drive our business, actually, the same message applies for all of us, in my view. It's just, it just made sure that we can really land that message in the wider organization, which is, you know, just remove the low value. You know, don't, don't get in your car and drive for an hour to be in the office because that's the thing that you do every Tuesday. You know, do it because you've got a really good Tuesday plan with some real valuable face time with your team to do the stuff that you just can't do over Microsoft Teams or Zoom and do it that way. And actually ask yourself if it's not going to add the value, then should you be doing that travel? I think the other piece that is not lost on me and I'm sure is not lost on, on anyone else on, on this session that, you know, not, not everyone has the luxury of a great working environment to work from home. So we also need to recognize that people, you know, use a an office environment or an environment away from their own home is actually being more conducive to work. So, you know, I'm very cognizant of the fact that there are people that are desperate to get back to the office because, you know, working from a, a bedside table in a spare room isn't isn't conducive. And for me, I'm just convinced, I'm just utterly, you know, utterly focused on making sure that where people want to do that, they can do that and they can do it as safely as possible. So again, I'm not saying we'll go against government guidelines by any stretch, but we will move back into this place where 
people have the opportunity to work from a, you know, a traditional office environment, but at the pace that we feel is right for our business and right for the individual. Um, and that's how we're looking at it because it definitely feels like we're moving that way. That's really interesting. It's certainly something that's on my mind at the REC. And you, know, you both know that the REC, most of the REC staff are based in London. And, and therefore, we've got the kind of the challenge of public transport to the office. But e- equally, you're very aware of uh, that not everyone has a has an office space in their house or a, or a nice garden to sit in. Uh, there, there's, um, there's a range of experiences, but everyone's experienced this period differently. Frank, you talked about cutting out the low value stuff and focusing on the high value stuff. How does that play through to your discussions with the client side in terms of trying to find that high value equilibrium uh, that Mike hinted at earlier for the NHS in in the sectors that you're servicing? My vision for, for this business is to be is to move away from you know just being a functional um, uh, vacancy filler, um, which is you know clearly a, a requirement. We've got big volumes of, of of requirement that we get given day by day to to fill staff to get into these factories and businesses to to work, which which I totally get, and we need to be great at that. But moreover, we need to show clients that actually and, and customers that we can get you know, a higher caliber of candidate, that that candidate can be more productive, that we're more invested in the KPIs of our customers, which you know, we think are just focused about filling the shifts. They're not, you know, the, the, the customers are, are focused on, yes, fill my shift, but make sure the people that you fill my shift with are the right type of candidate that actually will drive the productivity of my warehouse, my, my business um, to, deliver, to deliver more efficiently and, and and so on and so forth. And I think as a business, I want us to be more invested uh, and more tied into our customers, you know, KPIs, where they may not naturally feel relevant to what we do today. Um, So that's really where I want the conversation to move, which means that we are having, you know, we're freeing up our staff from simply, you know, filling vacancies to allowing, you know, some level of automation to do that for us, but then to get those on-site people to think more about what we can do to drive the performance of our of our customers versus their KPIs, and and that's the key. And if we do that, that's you know typical service profit chain stuff. That you know if we can improve the service that that gets delivered by our customers, that will naturally result in you know client retention and hopefully development of of, um, of ongoing business, but but make us you know much more than just simply a recruitment business. Um, so that's where I'd like to see us going. And I, and I genuinely think, you know, weirdly, you know, this pandemic has given us the opportunity to prove some of that stuff out, prove that technology works, get the buy-in from our customers so we can move the conversation forward. That's fascinating, Frank. And, you know, I, I did a webinar last week on kind of the future for the industry. And that changed very well with one of the, the things I was talking about then, which is really, you know, start from how you solve your client's problem. And if you're doing that at maximum efficiency and sustainability, then the business you know, isn't going to be far from from the wrong track. And Mike, um, what Frank was just talking about seems to echo pretty well with uh, where you started out uh, today, thinking about uh, a longer term partnership with the NHS. Exactly. And I think there's two streams to that partnership. There's the workforce, let's call it the sort of workforce management side of the partnership. So how how can the system 
NHS private providers collaborate to respond to, you know, the, the, the big mega trends of imbalance of supply and demand, the shift to flexible working, to, to get better value out of the workforce and better engagement with the workforce. And that's undoubtedly, as, a, as I sort of hinted at, there's some things I think we can learn from some of the sectors that, that Frank serves, which I think would be instructive for um, you know, actually for the healthcare system. And hence, I've deliberately recruited some people into our space who aren't from healthcare, because I think that that would benefit the staffing side of our business. But but the other piece is, you know, aside from workforce management solutions, is to think about healthcare delivery solutions. And a third of our business now is, is entirely about healthcare delivery services, uh, where we're affecting taking clinical and commercial risk and the outcomes. And I think... You know, in our world where, yes, there's high volume, not necessarily the volume that Frank's talking about at Staffline, but we also have some very, very specific credentialed skills, it's about responding in a different ways. So, again, just let me, if I give you an example, the, the, old, the old solution to the problem of how do we help deal with the risk of melanoma, for example, skin cancer, would be staff more and more dermatology clinics. Um, in hospital and, and maybe do on a Sunday when the hospital typically isn't working, all of which is all of which are good and a good pre-COVID solutions. But the sort of solutions we're looking at now is how can we take that those skill sets that we know and put them into the back end of a of a GP surgery in somewhere like Norfolk, where there's a, a higher preponderance of older people and therefore the risk of things like melanoma may be higher. And and that for me is about putting the candidate workforce to work in new ways to deliver services and solutions, you know, that fundamentally help the system get more effective. And, and that has to be the role of, certainly in healthcare, of, of, a, of a major provider like ourselves. Fantastic. Thanks, Mike. I think there's a, a unifying theme here, isn't there, about how we find the added value in the work that we're doing for clients and do so in a way that acknowledges that our own staff will be working differently going forward. Fantastic uh, discussion. And I think uh, listeners will be interested to hear how how many common facets there are to the, the questions you're facing in quite different sectors and quite different businesses. Um, it's certainly been fascinating for me. So thank you both, uh, Frank, Mike, for joining us this afternoon. My pleasure. And do join us again on another episode of the REC podcast. If you've enjoyed this session, why not have a look at episode 28 on the future of the national living wage with the Secretary of the Law Pay Commission, David Massey. Or if you're thinking about uh, transactions and refinancing, try episode 25, uh, M&A and recruitment uh, with our uh, good friends at, at uh, KPMG. Lots to uh, uh, to pick up on in the back catalogue now. Uh, do check that out if you've enjoyed this one. And I'll see you again on another episode of the REC podcast. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this episode helpful. Head to our COVID-19 hub on www.rec.uk.com forward slash COVID-19 for the latest guidance on managing your business during these unprecedented times.